Chapter 25, page 194. With the streetlight out, no one could see what was happening at the Palomino house, but there was no mistaking the sound of scuffling feet and raised voices. Some kind of commotion was going on across the street. Eli Mulroney jumped to his feet. What the blazes? Logan was bewildered. He and the team had been over the plan so many times, and no part of it included running around outside and yelling. The plan must have jumped off the rails somehow, but he couldn't admit that here. So he said with a straight face, I don't hear anything. But obviously, he didn't sell the line, because the old man slapped a fist into his palm. That does it. This neighborhood is going down the drain. It's gotten to the point where a man can't enjoy a few quiet moments on his front porch. I'm calling the police. Whatever was going on, Logan knew he had to do something. In theater lingo, it was called an ad lib, when an actor broke from the script and followed his gut for the good of the show. It was time for a beauty right now. Logan braced both feet flat on the floorboards and launched himself rearward with all his might. The rocker swung back and flipped over, tossing him off the porch and into a bank of juniper bushes. God bless America! Logan, are you okay? The young actor was better than okay. While the old man was dabbing iodine on Logan's many cuts and scratches, no one was calling the police. What a performance! He had just covered the better part of a mile in a full sprint, but Griffin felt none of the ache in his legs or the fire in his lungs. He approached his own home almost as stealthily as he had Swindles. As far as Mom and Dad knew, Griffin was at Ben's, a marathon work session on a science fair project. The garage could be opened from the outside by keypad code, mechanism word to life, and the door began to roll up and away. It seemed louder than a 20-car pileup, but no one came bursting out to investigate the noise. Maybe Mom and Dad were too absorbed in one of their spirited checkbook balancing sessions to notice. He shrugged out of the acetylene tank and entered the garage, setting the blowtorch kit down on the concrete. The only light was a dim glow coming in from the street lamp. Farther in, it was pitch dark. He bumped the edge of his father's workbench and held his breath as tools jarred and resettled. A few screws or bolts pinged against the cement floor. Griffin felt around the blackness until his hand closed on the aluminum pole. It was time to give the smart pick its first true test. Opting for speed over stealth, he jumped on his bike, the device balancing on his lap as he pedaled for Swindle's house. He crossed town in record time, very nearly losing his father's invention as he wheeled onto Park Avenue extension. It was hard to see anything in the area of the broken streetlight, but the clamor of excited voices was unmistakable. He jumped off his bike and ran onto the scene, squinting as his eyes adjusted to the dark. He thought he spied Darren halfway up the heavy trunk, but no, the figure was too small. It was pitch climbing gingerly and grimacing in pain with every movement of her injured ankle. He ran up to Ben, who stood with the other team members, gazing at the big maple. Where's Darren? Ben pointed. 
Maybe he really is part gorilla. Griffin gawked. No wonder he hadn't spotted Darren at first. The big boy was 30 feet up, barely a body length below the Babe Ruth card. He clung to a narrow branch, swaying in the wind as he shinnied ever closer to the million-dollar prize. Savannah regarded the smart pick dubiously. You sure picked a strange time for a fishing trip. It's my dad's invention. It can get us the card. Hey, why did you guys let Pitch go up there with her bad leg? The drama unfolding in the tree had unmasked Melissa. Her curtain of hair was permanently parted, her wide eyes riveted on the two climbers. I don't think she's after the card. I think she's trying to rescue Darren. Looks like Darren's doing just fine on his own, Ben observed nervously. Another few feet and he's got it. With that, Darren pulled himself forward on the undulating branch and reached for the Bambino. His probing fingers passed just a few inches beneath it. Griffin powered on the smart pick and pressed the button. With a low whir, the aluminum pole telescoped outward, soaring high above them in the night. It works, he thought in amazement. Not that he doubted his father, yet never could he have imagined that it would be so impressive. The air was filled with blowing leaves. Trees rolled and weaved with the wind. But the smart pick never wavered, rising laser straight into the maple's branches. What the? Pitch did a double take as the gleaming metal whizzed past her shoulder. Wow, breathed Ben. Your old man really is a genius. Griffin shuffled his feet and tried to aim the fruit-safe pinchers at the tiny card. Every motion on the ground translated into a major swing on the other end of the long pole. The picking mechanism pitched wildly as it neared the top of the tree. Darren shuffled a little farther on his branch. He extended his arm and felt his fingertips brush the edge of the card. This was it. As he braced for the final stretch that would make him a millionaire, a metallic ring rose up right in front of him. The device opened into rubber-tipped pinchers that closed delicately on the Babe Ruth card and, with a twist, plucked it from the branch. His eyes bulged in dismay. The, the dumb pick? He snatched at the bambino, but the pinchers had already begun to retract, bearing the collectible away. There was a sickly crackling sound. Uh-oh. Far below, the team watched in tense anticipation as the prize made its descent. Careful, Ben said anxiously. Don't rip it. Griffin hung on to the smart pick like a fisherman landing a shark in the middle of a full gale. Don't worry. The patented fruit-safe mechanism is guaranteed not to damage fruit. That's not fruit, Savannah pointed out. That's my vet-schooled tuition, Melissa's computer, Logan's acting lesson, Pitch's climbing trip, college paid for, new cars when we're old enough. Melissa wore a grin so wide it nearly split her face. I can't believe we actually did it. And then a voice from above called, Help! Chapter 26, page 202. Darren was falling, still clutching the useless limb as it tore away from the tree. The team watched helplessly as he plummeted toward them. Ten feet up, the ripping wood held suddenly firm. Darren cried out 
as the branch lurched violently and swung around in the direction of the house. Crash! The bough slammed into a downstairs window, shattering the glass and tossing the boy like a rag doll back into the Palomino home. An ear-splitting wail blasted through the neighborhood as the Ultratech alarm system burst to life. Griffin abandoned the smart pick and joined Ben, Savannah, and Melissa in a mad dash for the house. Pitched dropped from the tree and limped after them. Griffin could taste bitter dread boiling up in his throat. He peered in to see Darren sprawled in the wreckage of the window, unmoving. Oh my God, is he dead? And then the big boy rolled over, shook his fist, and started shouting with rage. The rush of relief nearly knocked Griffin over. He couldn't imagine ever being so happy to be yelled at by this jerk. With Melissa's help, he hauled Darren over to the sill. Except for torn clothing and cuts and bruises, their betrayer was unhurt. You okay? Pitch bawled in his ear. And when Darren nodded sheepishly, she hauled off and punched him in the stomach. Logan pounded onto the wild scene, hollering like a madman. It was impossible to hear him over the clamor of the siren, but its meaning could not be mistaken. This outdoor chaos wasn't part of the plan. What had gone wrong? Griffin grabbed him by the shoulders. You were supposed to stay with Mr. Mulroney. You think he'd sit through this kind of noise, the actor shouted back. He went inside to call the cops, so I took off. Did we get the card? The card! The smart pick was lying on the ground somewhere with a million-dollar payload in its pinchers. Griffin retraced his steps, desperately scanning the grass. He could see nothing in the darkness. This can't be happening, not when we're so close. A glint of metal caught his attention. Heart-pounding, he snatched up his father's invention. The Bambino is still nestled in the mechanism. The alarm's gunt-churning howl died abruptly. After such overpowering noise, the sudden silence was as explosive as a bomb blast. The unexpected quiet revealed two sounds, police sirens in the distance and the barking of a guard dog. No, two guard dogs. Code Z, Griffin bellowed. There was a code Z in all Griffin's plans, the escape clause. The moment when the operation was either completed or busted or both, and all that remained was to get the heck out of there. The team scattered. Hey, cried Darren. Somebody's got to help me with my ladder. In your dreams, snorted Pitch, who was limping at top speed, indicating that her ankle felt a little better. Darren raced to the side of the house and tried to pull the 24-foot length away from the wall. The top overbalanced, and he had to dive to safety as the entire thing fell with a resounding kong to the grass. Chest heaving, he began the process of collapsing the six-foot sections and snapping them into place. The second piece wouldn't budge. Frantically, he tried to stomp it down. Come on! He made a split-second decision and ran after the others. Wait up! If those two dogs found the broken window, he didn't like his chances of outrunning them with a ladder on his back. And that same ladder was going to look pretty suspicious if the cops caught him with it on the way to investigate a rooftop break-in. Nothing was free in this world, and the cost of tonight was one ladder. He'd explain it to his parents somehow, even if he had to tell them Griffin Bing stole it. 
Griffin stuffed the card in his pocket, and he and Ben made a beeline for the bike. Hold this, Griffin commanded, handing over the smart pick, and try to stay awake this time. And they were off, riding double along Park Avenue Extension, swerving down a side street to avoid an approaching squad car. Ben was frantic. What if Swindle figures out it was us? The police will search us and find the card. Griffin cruised up and stopped beside a mailbox. I've got it covered. He reached inside his shirt and produced an envelope with the address and stamp already on it. He popped the Bambino inside, sealed the flap, and dropped the letter through the slot. Ben was bug-eyed. You mailed it? To who? It's better for you not to know. They got back on the bike and rode to Ben's house. Ben jumped off and handed over the smart pick. I've always had a lot of respect for you, man, he said solemnly, but I never dreamed we had a prayer of pulling off what we did tonight. If you've got the right plan, Griffin told him, that's all you need. Just the thought of a successful operation brought a smile to his lips. As he pedaled toward home, he allowed himself a few moments of self-congratulation. True, there had been hiccups, Pitch's injury, Ben's catnap, the empty safe, the extra dog, the guy at the door, and especially Darren's betrayal. But the team had improvised, sidestepped, overcome. After all, the team was part of the plan, and this had been the plan to end all plans. As he rounded the corner to his own block, his heart very nearly jumped out of his ribcage. Dancing colored lights whirled across the brick front of the Bing house. A squad car was parked in the driveway, flashes ablaze. Chapter 27, page 209. He was astounded. How could the cops be here already? The team had gotten away before any officers reached the Palomino home to investigate the alarm. And Swindle should still be at the hockey game. For a moment, Griffin actually thought about turning his bike around and making a break for it. How crazy was that? A fugitive, living on the lam, never to see his family or friends again. No, there was nothing to do but face the music and hope for the best. At least he didn't have the card on him. The police couldn't prove anything without that. Stealing himself, he ditched his gloves and stocking cap in a bush and pedaled for home. Hey, hey! Two uniformed officers were running across the lawn. A third figure was right behind them. Dad. Before Griffin could dismount, the larger of the cops grabbed him under the arms and hauled him bodily off the bike. The man's partner snatched the smart pick and held it up to Mr. Bing. Sir, is this the prototype that was stolen from your garage? Stolen? The truth came crashing down on Griffin. This had nothing to do with the robbery. Dad must have gone to investigate the noises coming from the garage. When he found his invention missing, he called the cops. Mr. Bing looked shocked and embarrassed. I'm sorry, officers. It seems I've been wasting your time. This is my son. To Griffin, he said, what were you doing with my prototype? Griffin was so relieved to be off the hook for the baseball card that he had a hard time working up a shame-faced expression. Ben wanted to see how it worked. We were just picking pine cones out of trees. The senior officer spoke up. You weren't anywhere near Park X, were you? 
We've had reports of some vandalism over there. Broken window, alarm signal. Mr. Bing stepped in. No, his friend's house is nowhere near there. I'm afraid this is all my mistake. I apologize for dragging you over here. Griffin withered under its father's disapproving gaze as the officers got back in their car and drove away. Mr. Bing returned the invention to its place in its workshop. You nearly gave me a heart attack, he said finally. When I stepped into the garage and the prototype wasn't there, I just about lost it. I've poured my blood and sweat into that baby, not to mention most of our savings. Griffin studied his sneakers. Sorry, Dad. But what he wanted to say was, we're going to have more than enough money to develop your invention, and we won't have to sell the house to do it. What were you thinking? If you and Ben wanted a demonstration, all you had to do was ask. A ghost of a smile tugged at his lip. So, how did it go? Did the prototype perform up to expectations? It was like a sequence from a movie, the telescoping pole defying gravity to snatch the cart away from Darren in the nick of time. Oh, Dad, he said earnestly, in a million years, I never would have believed what a smart pick can do. The text message came halfway through the second period of the Rangers Maple Leafs game. Ultratech security, e-alert system, time of alert, 8.47 p.m. Attention, Palomino S. Wendell, an alarm signal has been received from the following address, 531 Park Avenue Extension, Cedarville, New York. Ultratech Central Station Monitoring has reported the incident to police. Never before had the highways of New York City seen a Honda Element driving at such reckless speeds. Weaving in and out of traffic, S. Wendell Palomino streaked eastward toward the Cedarville exit. He was still doing at least 60 as he screeched to a halt inches from the police cruiser in his driveway. The dealer was already breathing hard as he rushed up the front steps and fixed his sunny-side-up eyes on the officer positioned at the door. "'You're the homeowner?' she inquired. Palomino nodded, but stood there wheezing, incapable of speech. "'There's been a break-in,' the officer informed him. "'The entry point was from the roof, through the bathroom skylight. "'It looks like the thieves got what they were after. "'Your safe has been burned open.' probably by blowtorch. Never mind the safe, Palomino babbled frantically. What about my turkey? Your turkey? The agitated dealer blew by her and ran into the kitchen, where a horrifying sight greeted him. What had once been a 20-pound turkey was now perhaps a three-pound skeleton. Luther and the hired German shepherd lay side by side on the tile floor, too stuffed with ice-cold meat, to do more than raise their heads and growl. We found one suspect hiding in the basement, a Mr. Lamar Fontaine, but he seems to be unconnected to the crime. His ID says he works for an auction company. We think he walked in on the robbery and the dogs chased him down there. He's pretty shaken up. But what about the real thieves, Palomino wailed. Why didn't the dogs go after them? Impossible to tell, the officer replied. The turkey was probably used as a distraction. Palomino knew the truth was much more awful than that. He could see right through the turkey's ribs that the chest cavity was empty. 
discarded on the counter was a Ziploc bag that had kept the card clean and dry inside the frozen bird. The Palomino was gone. Chapter 28, page 216. Thieves nab one million dollar card on eve of auction. In what is being called the most spectacular robbery in the history of sports collectibles, a 1920 baseball card valued as high as $1 million, was stolen from its owner's home last night. The rare card, which portrayed slugger Babe Ruth as a member of the Boston Red Sox during his first season as a Yankee, was taken by thieves who dropped through a skylight wearing climbing harnesses. The daring heist was carried out under the noses of two trained guard dogs and a bonded courier hired by Worthington's auction house, where the card was to be sold scarcely 12 hours later. Police are investigating leads, including the harnesses and an extension ladder found at the scene. Quiet, sleepy Cityville was suddenly on the map. TV news mobile units wandered the town, searching for Park Avenue Extension and Palomino's Emporium. A fleet of vans, equipped with satellite dishes, formed in front of the West Suffolk Medical Center, where S. Wendell Palomino had gone, suffering from nervous collapse. I didn't expect so much publicity, Ben mumbled worriedly at school on Friday. Every time you turn on the TV, there's Swindle, tearing his hair and weeping. Get real. It's a million bucks, retorted Darren. What I want to know is how long do we have to lie low before we can sell the card and get our money? Your money? Pitch was indignant. You tried to rip the rest of us off. I don't see why you should get a cent. Because I can turn you into the cops, Darren said smugly. Like it or not, we're in this together. Griffin didn't relish the idea of Darren profiting from his betrayal but he had to admit his enemy had a point. They were in this together. All day, the heist team clung to one another like shipwrecked victims adrift in a small lifeboat. When Ben headed down to the nurse for his allergy medicine, he made sure to stop by the media center to check the TV monitor. We made CNN, he reported after his catnap. The sound was off, but in the scrolling headlines, they called it a professional job. Well, that could be good news, Griffin mused cautiously. Professional means they probably don't suspect kids. Guys, Savannah called in a strangled voice. Look, the team joined her at the window. Two police cruisers were pulling up the circular drive of the school. Melissa's haunting eyes took refuge behind her curtain of hair. Maybe there's a safety assembly today, Logan suggested, hopefully. Oh, and how Griffin wished for it to be so. A few minutes later, the PA system burst to life. Would Darren Vader report to the office, please? Darren Vader to the office. With a sinking heart, Griffin told himself that there were a million reasons for a jerk like Darren to be in trouble, but he knew it was the latter. How could we just leave it there at the crime scene? At the time, it had seemed like Darren's problem and Darren's only. Now he realized that one member could be the police stepping stone to the entire team. Griffin waited in agony for Darren to return to the classroom. He never came back. Savannah communicated the news through panic-stricken eyes.
From her seat by the window, she had a perfect view of Darren being driven home by his parents. Would Antonia Benson report to the office, please? Antonia Benson. What's with our class today, joked Mr. Martinez. Did you guys rob a bank or something? He frowned at the raw fear on Pitch's ashen face as she limped to the door. I was only kidding. Griffin had a chilling vision, a pile of nylon ropes tethered to a broken vent pipe sitting in Swindle's bathroom. Everybody in Cedarville knew the Bensons were the only climbing family in town. Of course, the cops had put two and two together. Was the perfect operation unraveling before their very eyes? Like Darren, Pitch did not return to class. The other members of the team spent the remainder of the day in stiff-necked misery, wondering whose name would be called next. But as of the 3.30 dismissal, the PA system had remained mercifully silent. After school, all Griffin could offer was an appeal for calm. I admit that it doesn't look good, but the last thing we can afford is panic. Remember, we don't know anything for sure yet. It was a measure of just how frightened everyone was that there was no babble of disagreement in the ranks of the guilty. At this point, there was nothing left to do but hope. On the walk home, though, Ben could not keep silent. How bad is it, Griffin? I mean, if the cops find out everything, how much trouble are we in? Impossible to tell, said Griffin soberly. On the one hand, we're kids. On the other, breaking into a house is a real crime. And the thing we took is worth a ton of money. I've got a bad feeling about this media attention. They went their separate ways, and Griffin continued home, dragging his feet, not at all anxious to get there. He was genuinely amazed not to see half the police force camped out on his doorstep waiting for him. How was school today? His mother greeted. He looked over her shoulder. No army of cops ransacking the place in search of the missing collectible. Oh, you know, same old, same old. He prayed that the situation would stay that way. No news was good news. He set out his homework, but could not bring himself to touch it. It would have been too much like that Roman emperor fiddling while his city burned. Four o'clock, all clear. Four thirty, still nothing. Was it possible that they were going to get away with it? He was so tightly strung that when the phone rang, he almost hit the ceiling. It was pitch. I'm not supposed to be talking to you. Listen, I ratted you out. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm really, really sorry. My parents made me. And I'm pretty sure Darren did the same. Oh, no, no, no. Beneath his full-on panic, he was aware of a strange sense of relief, the terrified relief a soldier might feel when the waiting is over and the battle has finally begun. At least he wouldn't have to waste his energy wishing for miracles. Don't sweat it, Pitch, he croaked bravely. Thanks for the heads up. Through his bedroom window, he could already see the line of police cars turning onto his street. There was very little chance that they were going to someone else's house. The jig was up. Chapter 29, page 224. Being interrogated by police. Helpful hints. Stick like glue to the three answers. One, I didn't steal it. You can't steal what's already yours. Two, 
I don't have it. A search of the house will prove this is the truth. Three, I don't know where it is. Also true, since it's impossible to tell if the card is still in the mailbox, at the post office, or on its way to the designation address. Griffin never put the latest plan on paper, but it was very much in his mind when the police came to question him in the case of the stolen Babe Ruth card. It wasn't much like cop shows on TV. There were no handcuffs, no hot lights in his face, no one-way mirrors. In fact, they didn't even go to the precinct house. The interrogation took place in the Bing's living room, with Griffin flanked by his parents on the couch. Detective Sergeant Vincini was polite, but it was obvious that he was losing patience. Maybe you think that a little baseball card is something to collect and trade and flick at a brick wall. Well, not this one. This one is worth more than a house. This very minute, in New York City, a major auction is a big flop because this card was supposed to be the main event. I didn't steal anything, Griffin said stubbornly. That's not what Darren Vader said. That's not what the Benson girls said. Two of my officers were here last night when you arrived home with your father's thingamajig. The timing would have been just about right. I've been a cop too long to believe in coincidences. Dad spoke up. Griffin, if you know something about this, you have to tell the sergeant right now. There's nothing to tell, Griffin insisted, trying to keep his voice steady. There are ten policemen tearing the place apart. If I was hiding a baseball card in the house, wouldn't they have found it by now? So enlighten me, Vincenzi demanded. It wasn't in your desk or your locker at school, and it doesn't seem to be here. What did you do with it? I don't know where it is. Vinzini frowned. Are you denying that you were at 531 Park Avenue Extension last night? I haven't done anything wrong, Griffin said firmly. Not by stealing, not by lying about it. The officer digested this. When he spoke again, it was to Griffin's parents. I'm going to give you two some time to talk things over with your son. You'll notice that I haven't been using words like arrest, trial, or juvenile detention. Yet. Mr. Bing looked up in alarm. Does Griffin need a lawyer? Well, that would be up to you folks. Just take a minute to think about what Mr. Palomino has lost. If you were him, would you be inclined to say, drat the luck and let the matter drop? I don't think so. He stood up. Until this issue is resolved, Griffin is not to lead the Cedarville town limits. He can go to school, but that's about as far from home as we're willing to allow. Otherwise, we will start using words like arrest. With that promise hanging in the air like a cloud of toxic fumes, Vinzini gathered his team of searchers and left the house. All right, Griffin, Dad said as the squad cars drove away. I want the whole story. Griffin knew he owed his parents the truth, and not just because there was no way to get out of telling it. The police had invaded their home rifled through their belongings, threatened their son with imprisonment. Mom and Dad had become a part of this. He came clean. Remember that sleepover at Stan Winters? Well, it never really happened. Ben and I spent the last night in the old Rockford house before they tore it down. His parents listened, their eyes widening in awe and amazement as their son related the details of the discovery of the Babe Ruth card and how Swindle had earned his nickname by tricking Griffin into selling it cheaply. 
He confessed everything, the unsuccessful break-in at the store, the assembly of the team, and the heist preparations, right up to the assault on 531 Park Avenue Extension. But where's the card now, Dad demanded. Where did you hide it that half the police department can't find it? It's safe, Griffin assured him. I wasn't lying when I told Officer Vanzini that I don't know exactly where it is, but I'll be able to get it when the time comes. The time is this minute, Mom stormed. I can't believe we're even having this discussion. When you were growing up, did we somehow give you the message that stealing is okay? Of course not, Griffin exclaimed. That's why I did it, so Swindle wouldn't get away with stealing it from me. Think about what that card is worth. I don't care what it's worth, she shot back. Your future is worth more. Stop playing games and give the police what they want. Mr. Bing tried to be reasonable. How about this? We give the police the card to get you off the hook. Then we hire a lawyer and fight this Palomino character in court. Get real, Dad. You know we can't afford lawyers. That's what this whole thing was about in the first place to get our hands on some money so we won't have to sell the house. There was a shocked silence. Oh, come on, guys. There's a for sale sign on our lawn. Give me a little credit for having the brains to figure out what it's doing there. When he spoke again, Mr. Bing's face was almost gray. I know we've had our money problems, but your mother and I never dreamed that it would touch you this way. Don't blame yourselves. We shouldn't even have money problems. That card is ours. Mrs. Bing was close to tears. Oh, Griffin, how could you get yourself into such a mess? Throughout the planning and execution of the heist, Griffin had never suffered a single moment of regret. Now, as he saw his parents' distress, adding to their burden this way cut straight to his heart. Later, he sat in his room in semi-darkness, trying to tune out the sound of his parents' argument downstairs. For once, the subject wasn't money. It was what to do with their son, the burglar. And now dawned on him for the very first time. He had plotted the operation with the skill of a chess master, but he had given very little thought to what would happen once the Bambino was in his possession. Had he expected Swindle to give up without a fight? And the police to shrug the whole thing off after their first search turned up nothing? That was bad enough, but he had also given zero consideration to his parents like maybe they simply wouldn't notice that anything unusual was going on. Was he crazy or just stupid? He certainly didn't have the right to call himself the man with the plan anymore. Mom's voice carried up the stairs. We have to force him to give up that card. It's our job as his parents to see that he doesn't destroy his life. He's only 11 years old. Her husband's words were quieter and full of despair. We can order him, we can yell at him, ground him, and lock him in his room. But if he doesn't want to tell us, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. It shocked Griffin a little, but he instantly recognized that his father was right. In spite of all the adults involved, only Griffin was capable of laying hands on the Bambino. And there was no way his parents, or Swindle, or the auction house, or the police, or even the president could change that. This should have made him feel powerful. Instead, he felt trapped and very much alone.
Chapter 30, page 233. Ben called on Saturday morning, but Griffin was afraid to say much. What if the police had bugged their phone? So, uh, Ben, did anything unusual happen yesterday? Any visitors at your house? Oh, yeah, Ben replied nervously. I think we all had visitors. They talked about you a lot. The visitors, I mean. Are you all right? Kinda, Griffin told him. For now. You? I'm still part deaf in one ear from my mother yelling. There was an awkward pause. How about the apple? Griffin subjected him to a long silence. I don't know anything about any apple. He was dying to say, It's okay. It's still hidden. It's safe. But there was no way he could risk mentioning the card now. At this moment, it might be the single hottest item in the greater New York area. Oh, yeah, gotcha, Ben stammered. Have you seen the paper? There's a lot about what happened, but they don't mention any names. That's good news, right? Griffin sighed. I don't know what's good news or bad news anymore. The only good news was not being arrested. He expected it to happen at any second. He could hear distant police sirens in every ordinary household sound, the power hum of the computer, the whir of the microwave, the refrigerator motor. He spent the weekend in a state of constant terror, sleeping no more than five or ten minutes at a stretch. He was truly astonished still to be a free man when school resumed on Monday morning. It took an enormous mustering of courage to appear in the halls. But to his surprise and relief, all eyes did not instantly dart to him. True, the heist was a big story in Cedarville. Yet, it did not seem to be known who the prime suspects were. Maybe that made sense. Wasn't it typical of the adult world not to consider that kids could pull off such an elaborate operation? The other team members, Pitch, Savannah, Melissa, Logan, and Darren, kept their distance. Everyone understood that the heat was on. They're probably under orders from their folks to stay away from us, Ben offered. I sure am. It was one of the first things my mother yelled. Sort of stupid, right? I mean, the police already know who we are. Don't worry, Griffin promised. I'll take all the blame. My plan, my problem. He looked around uneasily. To be honest, I can't believe the cops haven't come for me yet. Did you see the story in the Sunday paper, Ben asked? It just about accused Swindle of ripping somebody off to get the card in the first place. The whole country's going to learn what a crook he is. Griffin winced. That means one of us has been talking too much. Probably Darren. It's one thing to answer a few questions and another to give a play-by-play -play of the whole operation. That same article had a long description of the smart pick plucking the card out of Swindle's tree. Anybody can check with the patent office and find out that's my dad's invention, and that could lead them to me. I'm toast. But that was the astounding thing. He wasn't toast. Although Griffin's fevered imagination conjured up a police officer behind every telephone pole, Detective Sergeant Vanzini did not come back for him. Not that day, not Tuesday, not even Wednesday. People were still buzzing about the missing baseball card, but the world kept on turning. Even S. Wendell Palomino had been released from the hospital 
could now be found behind the counter of his shop. There weren't many customers. Word had spread that the dealer could not be trusted. Griffin held that fact to his heart. It was a glowing coal on an icy night, a tiny measure of justice. Did that mean the intense heat was beginning to cool off? Was it crazy to believe such a thing? Even Mom and Dad let Ben come over for a couple of hours so they could work on their science project together. At least, Mom said okay. Dad was making himself pretty scarce lately. Griffin couldn't escape the feeling that his father was avoiding him out of anger and distress over this whole affair. It made him utterly sad. Have you been noticing the others talking to me in school? Ben whispered during the research. They're asking what's going on with the, you know, the apple. Tell them to hang in there, Griffin advised. This isn't over yet. You mean you've got it? I know where to get it, Griffin replied cryptically. Ben couldn't hold back. Where'd you mail it to, Griffin? Who's keeping it for us? It's not a good idea for you to know. It was a measure of their friendship that there was no suspicion in Ben's eyes. He trusted Griffin absolutely and had faith in the man with the plan. When do you think it's safe to go for it? It's been almost a week now. How long do we have to wait? That was the million-dollar question. The coast seemed to be clear, but how could it be? The passage of six days didn't mean that the heist had never happened. And the revelation that Swindle deserved what he got didn't undo the fact that the card had been taken from the, his house. And yet, where were the police? Not at the Bing home, not at the school. Griffin still couldn't shake the feeling that he was being watched. But it was exactly that, a feeling. The facts suggested that the cops must have moved on to other things. All crime didn't grind to a halt just because a baseball card got stolen. They had new cases, laws to enforce, police business to attend to. I hope. Griffin knew that the longer he waited, the safer he would be. He also knew that the more time the card was out there, the greater the chance that something might happen to it. He analyzed the situation every which way, and the answer always came back the same. The moment was now. Chapter 31, page 240, 3 a.m. A black-clad figure opened the Bing's back door and stepped onto the patio. Staying in the shadows, he made his way down the street, through yards, hopping fences, and squeezing through hedges. At the end of his block, he allowed himself the luxury of the sidewalk, but kept well away from the streetlights. The windows were dark, the roads deserted. He could see it now in the gloom, a quarter mile up the avenue. Every day on the way to school, he had passed this spot and made a point of not looking at it. Not yet. Not under the prying eyes of the police. But tonight, no one was watching. There was only Griffin Bing and, he hoped, George Herman Babe Ruth. The debris was gone, but the stone foundation of the old Rockford house glowed stark whitish-gray in the moonlight. At the curb stood the only other part of the mansion that had escaped the wrecking ball, the mailbox, resting on its post. As he reached for the little door, Griffin observed his hand shaking. What if it isn't there? What if some sensible postal carrier had refused to deliver to a house that was obviously demolished? No, the flag's up. It's been up for three days. There's mail in there. 
my mail. He drew out the contents of the box and stared. A free month of Netflix. Wait, there was another envelope, a smaller one, a million-dollar letter. He tore it open and dropped the Babe Ruth card into his hand. The floodlights were so sudden, so blinding, that he was frozen in place like a butterfly on a pin. Detective Sergeant Vanzini stepped out of the glare and snatched the collectible from his hand. In that moment, Griffin understood that the eyes on the back of his neck had been real after all. Vanzini spoke the words Griffin had been dreading for six days. You're under arrest. They didn't lock him in a cell. They didn't lock him up at all. He sat on a hard wooden chair in the middle of a squad room while Vanzini pounded out a report on a manual typewriter that must have been 100 years old. He knew he was in big trouble, though because every single officer on the night shift came by to have a look at the kid who took down a house with an ultra-tech alarm system and two guard dogs and made off with a million-dollar prize. Caught. Just the word made him shudder. In a plan like this, so many factors were at play, but caught was always rock bottom. The worst thing that could have happened had just happened. There was no counter move for this, no recovery. This was a major disaster. How many times had he told himself that it really wasn't stealing, that the card rightfully belonged to him? Here in the police station, he realized that argument wasn't going to work for five seconds. Griffin had always tried to stand up against adults, pushing the kids around. But now, under arrest, he had put himself more at the adult's mercy than ever before. What was next? Trial? Conviction? Juvenile detention? It could really go down that way. It was no joke. His one consolation was that he was sitting here alone and that Ben was not beside him, about to share his fate. Ditto, Pitch, Savannah, Logan, Melissa, even Darren. He could not predict what the future might hold, but he prayed he would have the strength to follow through on his plan to take all the blame. Detective Sergeant Vizzini was still typing the same page. The man had to be the slowest typist on the planet. Each labored click was a jarring hammer blow to Griffin's raw nerves. How did I get myself into this? Griffin came a voice from behind him. Dad was a mess. Pajama top instead of a shirt, sweatpants, slippers, trench coat, bed hair. He had never looked better, not to Griffin. He ran into his father's arms, blubbering like a two-year-old. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm so sorry. It's okay, son. But it wasn't okay. It might never be okay. Vizzini pulled the sheet from the typewriter and placed it on the table in front of Griffin. Sign here at the bottom. Griffin backed away from the page like it was a live serpent. A confession? Worse? What does it say? Take it easy, the officer soothed. It's just a statement that you found the baseball card inside the old Rockford house. Griffin was bewildered. What do you need that for? There's a lady in Baltimore named Winifred Rockford Bates. She's 97 years old, and she's the last surviving member of the original Rockford family. The card is really hers. So it might be some consolation to you that your friend Palomino is out of luck. And what happens after I sign? Griffin quavered. Then we go home, Dad said gently. What? Go home? Was that even possible? 
Griffin wheeled to face the sergeant. Really? Vanzini looked stern. I hope you know how lucky you are. Mr. Palomino isn't going to press charges. He wants to avoid an investigation into whether he broke the law when he cheated you. It's a pretty happy ending all around, probably happier than you deserve. Thanks, officer. Thanks a lot. As he and his father walked to the car, Griffin took note of a slight bite in the early morning air, a hint of the coming winter, or maybe it was just a smell of freedom. He knew full well how close he had come to losing his. Mr. Bing pulled on to the road. Funny the way things work out, he commented. Even if Palomino hadn't hoodwinked you into selling that card, it still wouldn't be yours. In the end, it would always have belonged to that little old lady in Baltimore. Griffin nodded, glum despite his relief. It would have been great, though. A million bucks, hundreds of thousands anyway, his father sighed. Maybe it's a sign. Money isn't supposed to be easy. I don't care about easy money, Griffin mumbled. I just don't want to have to sell our house and move away. Mr. Bing jammed on the brakes, and the car screeched to a halt in the middle of the deserted street. We haven't even had a chance to tell you yet. Griffin was alarmed. Tell me what? All that publicity from the baseball card has generated a storm of interest in the smart pick. I've got investors who are going to back me through the whole process. Griffin stared at his father. You mean, we're not selling the house anymore. We're going to be just fine. Chapter 32, page 248. Never thought I'd see you again. Logan Kellerman stepped onto the porch at 538 Park Avenue Extension and stood in front of the elderly man in the rocking chair. How are you, Mr. Mulroney, he asked. Older and wiser. I now know that your sudden interest in backgammon was to kick me from noticing what was going on across the street. I have to admit it. I never took you for a burglar. Logan shuffled uncomfortably. I'm not. I'm an actor. Well, you must be a good one, Mulroney growled. You sure fooled me. I thought I had a friend. It wasn't all acting, Logan admitted. And when he got no reply, he took out the backgammon board and began to set it up on the rickety table between them. The retired miner eyed him suspiciously. Don't tell me. Palomine's got a set of silver candlesticks that you missed on the first go-round. Logan pulled up a chair. What's the count? 17 to 14? Mulroney snorted. In your dreams, little man, you never won more than 12 games from me. Logan threw the dice. The comeback starts today. Mrs. Winifred Rockford Bates of Baltimore, Maryland, was an eccentric multimillionaire who thought Babe Ruth was a candy bar. She generously gave her 1920 baseball card to her youngest relative, Darren Vader of Cedarville, New York. Griffin took it hard. I always believed that planning was everything, but no plan could ever insulate you from a calamity like this. Darren kept saying he was related to the Rockfords, Ben reminded him. We didn't think he was telling the truth. It's the first time for everything, I guess, Griffin moaned. This is the end of the world. It was even less comfort when the card sold for $974,000, making it the second most valuable sports collectible in history. 
He won't get to enjoy one cent of it, Ben predicted in an effort to console his friend. His folks will make him just put it in the bank for college or something. The reality was even better than that. Darren's parents didn't want their son to reap the benefit of a robbery. They forced him to donate most of the money to the Cedarville Museum. The large gift put the building fund over the top and allowed construction to begin. As the bulldozers roared to life on one side of town, on the other, Palomino's Emporium of Collectibles and Memorabilia closed its doors for good. The store had never recovered from the scandal that its owner had cheated Griffin out of the Babe Ruth card. S. Wendell Palomino moved to California, leaving only one thing behind, his dog Luther, who was sent to the town Pound. The Doberman spent less than an hour there before being adopted by Savannah Drysdale. It was a match made in heaven. The Cedarville Museum opened on schedule the next summer on the site where the old Rockford house had once stood. The townspeople turned out in force for the dedication ceremony and toured the exhibits of artifacts from pioneer times and memorials to war heroes who had grown up in the area. What everybody knew, but no one was willing to admit, was that the most interesting thing that had ever happened in this sleepy little community was the great baseball card heist. That was why the biggest crowd lingered in front of a large framed photograph of seven sixth graders. The plaque mentioned nothing about the famous robbery. It read, Special thanks to Darren Vader, Logan Kellerman, Melissa Dukakis, Antonia Benson, Savannah Drysdale, Benjamin Slovak, and Griffin Bing for a job well done. The picture hung opposite a large window overlooking the building's adjoining skate park, which had been a condition of the museum's largest single donation. The idea for the park came from an old proposal that had been found in the file. Its author was one of the seven in the photograph, the ringleader, the man with the plan. That is the end of Swindle by Gordon Corman. This is volunteer Gloria Zwern for Chris Radio. Thank you.